Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Prizman, and I'm so happy to be joined by Kaming Cheng today. She is a Cunningham Fellow, a Lambda Literary Award finalist, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. She is the author of the novel Bestiary, which was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and the VCU Cabell First Novelist Award. Her new novel, is called Organ Meats. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. I, I'm, I'm so happy I get to talk to you. Um, I have so many questions about this book. Um, but, but I think I want to start with the first line in your acknowledgments. Ooh, yes. In which you say that Organ Meats is the third book in a triptych. So you... Aside from the book I mentioned in your author bio, you also had the story collection, Gods of Want. So when you look at Beast Jerry, Gods of Want, and now Organ Meats, you feel like you've created a kind of triptych. And I want to hear about that. Yeah, I, I, I never really envisioned, especially when I was first writing Beast Jerry, that there would be kind of these three books that occupied the same world and consciousness and had a very similar interest in language and with premise um, and with the idea of origin stories or creation myth. I think all three stories are very obsessed with kind of the story before the story, um, the the premise from which all of these characters are kind of growing and reaching out of the soil and the dirt. Um, but I was very delighted because I think three is a very mythical number as well. I always think about like three fates, three theories, um, and just three as a kind of mystical number. Um, so it feels very, very appropriate. I mean, I also feel like I always think of these theory and gods of want as kind of doorways in a hallway and organ meets is the very last stop. It's kind of like the end of the hallway that just drops into the abyss. Um, so I feel like it takes the styles of these theory and gods of want and pushes it to its furthest extreme. And it's kind of the most disorienting funhouse mirror esque. Um, it's kind of like the, the the most uncompromised version <laughs> of the particular style that I was kind of writing in at the time and um, was interested that. in. Yeah, so it's it's really fun because also this is the third, uh, or Organ Meets is a book about return. Um, the shape of the story itself is these two girls kind of returning to each other after a separation. And I feel like Organ Meets is kind of my return um, to, to my previous books. It, it closes the loop in a really fun and surprising, unanticipated way. Absolutely. I mean, so I, 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 I saw your previous books described as magical realism, but like this is, this organ meets goes into the surreal for sure. And I, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that. I, I often like to ask fiction writers about their constraints and Seemingly anything could happen in the world of your novel and this, but it's 266 pages. So you had to make some choices. And uh, I, I want to know if you have any constraints and, and how you go about creating this world. Yeah, it's funny because this is kind of the most unconstrained out of the out of the, the mythic triptych. I think God's Want actually was a lot of those stories were kind of my exercise in constraint or having a very specific conceit that I was working within. And especially in that small form, it was really helpful. And then I feel like Organ Meets, it was almost like this extreme form of world building where every sentence contained its own world. And every sentence, again, felt like it was being 
push to its furthest point. Um, and so I would, it was almost like playing a relay race with myself where every sentence was passing the baton off to the next sentence. But it was like, a, it was not like, oh, around the lap. It was like someone climbing a tree, doing a flip in the sky, <laughs> you know, landing in a puddle and then handing off the baton where I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened to the trajectory here? Um, but I think in some ways that was, that was really fun. It was really deeply pleasurable. And again, kind of um, following that, that process, maybe the, the constraint is more um, process in the process of writing, where I was thinking a lot about um, the sound of the language, um, the, all the sonic qualities of the sentences, um, and having a kind of very sen- sensory relationship to language. Um, rather than just necessarily like an intellectual um, connection to the language. And I think that helped shape um, where the book wanted to go and in what directions I should kind of continue excavating and delving. Is like letting that, that's those sensations and that feeling of my body being very engaged in the writing process guide me. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel like your books are all very visceral, but this one really takes the cake um tell me a little bit about writing that might not always be aimed at moving a plot forward yeah that's such an interesting question i i feel like there's i can't remember the poet who who says it but there's a quote i heard it from victoria chang at a panel um and she said uh i'm interested in language first then ideas um and i think that more than what I'm kind of doing now, because I think having exited the triptych, I'm now experimenting with style and form and plot in a different way. But when I was writing these books and especially organ meets, it was very much about following the language first, letting it lead me and kind of embracing a sense of mystery and again, a sense of disorientation. And I feel like we often talk about, you know, grounding the reader um, and kind of being sure to to kind of guide them through the narrative. And I believe in that deeply. Um, there is there is kind of a thread here <laughs> in the book, but I'm also really interested in reading, I feel like reading experiences that I gravitate toward the most or that have kind of most transformed me are oftentimes experiences where I feel extremely disoriented um, and where I become kind of defamiliarized to things that I normally, I might otherwise see as like mundane or natural or ordinary um, so I think rather than focusing on a linear plot, it was kind of more like this tapestry, um, thinking of like the thread motif throughout the book, um, feeling like I'm creating something, um, even if it's just the fragment of something, kind of a greater quilt or landscape, um, less kind of thinking about progressing through that narrative and a little bit more of like, oh, what can we expand? What can we see in this horizon of language? Um, and how might we kind of guide the, the reader's gaze to different points in this landscape, even if we're, you know, moving side to side <laughs> or moving backwards, not necessarily always moving forward in time. I love that because I do feel like this book is similar to poetry in that you just sort of have feelings wash over you. And then, of course, me being the kind of reader who um, we might be referring to in MFA programs who need orientation. My first impulse with when meeting Anita and Rainey, the, the two main characters, um, 
was to look for facts about them as if that was in any way your intention or in any way the thing that I would could do to appreciate this book the most. Yeah, I oh yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like in some ways the more that I kind of talk about the collectives that surround the girls or surround a character, thinking about character as relational, um, what are their roles? What kind of roles do they then use to inform their identity? Um, how do they relate to the collective? All of those questions, I feel like to me, um, form form a more complete portrait of of someone rather than thinking merely uh, thinking of them merely as kind of individuals um, who uh, you know have these very particular. I mean, they definitely are very idiosyncratic. These two girls have their idiosyncrasies for sure, have their kind of unique obsessions and desires, um, and in some ways they have to kind of find a way to um, relate uh, to their collectives or to their roles within a family um, while also um, honoring and paying tribute to their individual desires. Um, So that's always kind of an interesting balance. Um, But yeah, I find that I tend to first think about who who are the people who came before them? Who are the women of their lineage? Um, What are the conditions that have formed them? there are a lot of like pearl motifs in this, in this book. So I was thinking of like, oh, what's, what is the oyster that they were pride from? I, um, I love that. Yeah. I, and I yeah, also love that you were that. talking yeah. about threads. And of course, you know, that is usually a metaphorical term, <laughs> but, 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 but we've got a, a red thread in, in this book that we encounter over and over again. Um, and I'm I'm curious about that because certainly the idea of the red thread of fate being a, a thing that has existed for many, many years is there. And yet you do something completely new and interesting with it. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I I was always really fascinated by the idea of red thread of fate and the idea of fate in general. Um, and then kind of thinking about the story, what are the many versions of the myths uh, that surround the red thread with this idea of, you know, a boy on a bridge and he, this deity tells him, you know, I, you're going to marry that girl and kind of points off to the distance. And he being kind of a rebellious child is like, no, you don't know me. You don't know my fate and throws a stone at her. It strikes her in the head. And then years later, when he's getting married, he meets his bride for the first time and she takes off her veil and she has a scar on her forehead and he's like, where did you get that scar from? And she was like, well, you wouldn't believe there. One time I was just standing, you know, off in the woods and this rock came flying out of nowhere and struck me in the head. That's how I imagined she would tell this story. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And and realizing that he that there's no way to kind of subvert that there's no rebellion against fate, essentially. But to me, what's most interesting about that story is not the man or the deity or the well, there, it's also very violent, which I find fascinating. Um, but it's like the woman who, <laughs> who has absolutely no agency whatsoever in this story um, and who's the one who like bears the scar of that fate and yet isn't really the subject of the story. Um, so I was I was thinking a lot about that kind of recovering matrilineal stories um, and thinking about um, the agency, like women's agencies in the myths that they have formed for themselves um, in this process of personal and collective myth making. 
Um, and also thinking about um, desire. Um, what, when, when does her desire kind of enter the story and what are her desires? Um, and then Red Thread being kind of a metaphor for lineage and for bloodline. But I wanted to kind of play around with that and thinking about other forms of ancestry, like chosen forms of ancestry, where I feel like Anita and Rainey, they belong to the same generation. They're both the same age, but they have found ancestry within each other and they have found a sense of origin within each other. Um, so there's this sense of kind of, you know, the poet Safia Ahola talks about horizontal ancestors, um, the idea of um, a kind of non-hierarchical form or a horizontal form um, of, of finding mentorship, finding teachers. Because I think these two girls also teach each other <laughs> a lot um, and are have a kind of loyalty that I'm really fascinated by. Um, so it is also thinking about a question of like, oh, the idea of being bound to someone what does it mean to be accountable for someone? Um, and to what extent is that a choice? To what extent is that an inheritance? Um, how how do they kind of navigate that sense of accountability? I love that, especially because dogs play a big a big part in the story. And not only are dogs part of their mother's mythology, um, and, and the idea that perhaps they are of dogs but also that there there are rules of doghood that they have made up themselves and uh that's how the book starts uh them playing and then it becomes something entirely different tell me tell me about the dogs as ancestors yeah i mean i was really fascinated by um there's a breed of dog called the Formosan Mountain Dog. And I, when I did my research, again, I don't know how accurate it is, but I, I did kind of diverge immediately in creating this like mythical dog um, that they're not technically like a domesticated species. They're kind of considered to be a, a wild dog. And I thought that was really fascinating because I thought, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Like dog means domesticated. Like the, wouldn't that be a wolf? Like what does it mean to be a non-domesticated dog? Or to be a wild dog. I didn't even know that those still existed. Um, so that really fascinated me. That form of like categor categorization or taxonomy was really interesting to me. Um, and I started to think about uh, what does it mean to, um, for these, for the girls in this family to kind of be created with this intended purpose um, in a certain way where it was like, oh, um, you are a daughter and you must assume that mantle of daughterhood in this very specific way. Um, and you have been kind of molded and shaped for this very particular role um, that you are not in control of. Um, but for these two girls to embrace wildness or desire or yearning um, or this sense of, uh, of choice, again, the idea of choosing your ancestry, choosing your lineage, um, choosing what to be loyal to. And in some ways, it's kind of about them being loyal to themselves. Um, I think that's what, for me, th that's what makes their friendship so, so fascinating to me is I feel like it's the one, it's the one kind of refuge in their life where they're able to ask each other, like, what do you want? What do you desire? Um, which they may not necessarily have space to ask themselves in other parts of their life. So it's this invitation to be selfish. Um, and something about being with each other rather than like effacing themselves or being self-sacrificial in that relationship, which I feel like they would otherwise be pretty used to. Um, it's it, 
they're a kind of relationship that grounds them and brings them back to themselves, um, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, and I think there is a playfulness to that as well. I think that's part of their, the, the boundlessness of their imagination and being able to kind of cross all these different species and transformations and mythologies. Um, to me, it's, um, they're, they're kind of paying tribute to the powers of their imagination um, and how that, that form of imagination really is um, a kind of work for them um, that they take very seriously as well. So it's a little bit of like, it's playful and then it's also serious. It's taking playfulness very seriously. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, to the point where even like what kid doesn't know a fart joke? Uh, but farts and feces play a big role in 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 their origin story as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, that's also kind of funny that it's it's a very immature sense of humor, but it's also taking it very very seriously. And I'm really interested in the sacred and the profane coexisting in writing and in language, um, and kind of enshrining or making divine the things that we consider maybe very mundane or very abject. Um, and then maybe looking at other things that we consider sacred and defamiliarizing them or making them strange or kind of showing the violence that is embedded within them. So I kind of enjoy playing around with um, with those elements. Yeah. Even there's a point, just for an example for the audience, very early in the book, uh, Rainy says she has to do she she needs a week to do something. I don't even remember. And Anita says, in a week we could start shitting live fish. And it's like <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit about writing from the girls' points of view and a variety of other characters. And, and how that worked for you. Yeah, so I made a very, now I think it's kind of an unusual choice for me, kind of early on in the editorial phases of this book, where um, Anita's perspective is first person present and Rainey's perspective is third person past. So it was like throwing in the wrench of, there are two different characters, but like two different POVs, but then also two different t tenses. Um, and at first I was like, why am I doing this? That seems unnecessarily <laughs> difficult for me to bounce between. But as I was writing, I realized that this is kind of the only way. Um, originally, Rainey's perspective wasn't really as present because Anita is so dominant and she's so kind of persuasive and insistent. And her voice is just, there's so much momentum when I wrote it. It was kind of like being caught in the undertow <laughs> um, of her particular like desire to assert her reality on the page. Um, and Rainey's was much more difficult to coax out. And I think third person and past tense it's a form of she's a little bit more distant from herself and she's attempting mm -hmm. to to kind of distance be distant from herself and she wants to assume a position of objectivity and she wants to again kind of have one foot in the reality she was born into and then one foot in Anita's reality but also yeah so she's kind of like sitting on the fence at all times and so it felt very natural that she would have a little bit more of a reflective voice, whereas Anita is really just barreling. She's like the, barely in. down the bit. She's the, yeah, she's the epitome of living in the moment. She truly is in the moment. There, there, nothing exists for her except the moment, um, which was really fun. Uh, yeah, so I, I kind of I didn't realize that it would be this uh, dual perspective, and I didn't realize that I would almost need to access. Um, 
not only these different these different perspectives, but like different ways of playing with like language and form in order to um, to really channel um, how different they are. Because in some ways they're they're very similar, um, and then in other ways they're they're foils. <laughs> um, so that was also really fascinating to play around with. And and I, I listened to a little bit of the audiobook, and and I think that that medium does a great job in kind of uh, making those two two different points of view flow together really beautifully. I thought it was done really well. Um, so just just a note. Um, I, another thing that I feel like Organ Meats is really interested in is the underside of things or the backside of things and um, the stories that aren't immediately visible. And I want to hear you talk about, a little bit about that, please. Yeah, that was one of the most fun and kind of surprising things that I discovered while drafting is like the idea of the island that their mothers are born from. It, it flips. Um, it, it's a double-sided island like a coin. So one side faces the sea and the other side faces the sky. But eventually sometime in history, for unknown reasons, mysterious reasons, the island locks into place and stops flipping over. So it used to be that um, people could kind of take on both sides of the island, the top side and the underside could take turns being in the air or being exposed to air. Um, but when it locked, one side was permanently submerged underwater. Um, and the girls discover that they are, they are descended from the underside of that, of that island, um, the people who live in the sea. And I guess I was just really interested in, um, what kind of stories, are get, get visibility or kind of immediately visible um what kinds of stories are submerged and what forms of like subterfuge have happened throughout history to keep those stories submerged um but also in what ways a submergence can also be a very strategic form of protection as well um or invisibility can be kind of considered a certain strategy so it's really fascinating to play around with those nuances by thinking of the idea of like a top side and an underside or you know a front side and a back side um and I think also the book is kind of oriented in an in a opposite direction in that it's very past facing and it's very much as you the more you progress to the book the further back in history you go um, and so I wanted to pay tribute to the book itself kind of being, you know, the underside of a book where it burrows backward and keeps moving backward um, as we unravel the women and the dog stories rather than necessarily moving forward. And I think that's part of what, to me, makes it part of the triptych um, because all three books um, I've written so far are kind of in that other orientation um, where the more you flip the page pages, ironically, you're kind of flipping backward <laughs> um, through time and through lineage, um, which is, yeah, it's kind of fun to, to um, yeah, to just be able to experiment with that, that form. And, and then, of course, there is a tree that plays a, a big role in the book, too. And later in the book, Rainy meets a, a dendrologist. Um, who who talks a little bit about the understory and and why why it's important yeah so I I 
I love sycamore trees very selfishly. So, and they have these like above ground roots, which are really fascinating to me. And I felt like it was kind of a great metaphor for um, kind of excavating your roots, which is what Rainy and Anita are doing. So it's like, oh, that's such a great, this maybe is a very poet's way of thinking, but I was like, that's such a great visual metaphor for this story, this sycamore tree. Um, and I remember I was, I was taking a walk and I can't remember where, but there was a sign that was explaining what an understory is and how it's kind of always lying in wait um, for the, for the overstory or for the, the kind of top part of the tree to die or be destroyed so that the understory can then kind of grow upward. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Again, I'm not a dendrologist, so I have a, a very literary interpretation of the understory. Um, cannot be, be <laughs> speaking of being accountable, cannot be fully accountable <laughs> to the science of the understory. But I was really fascinated by this idea of like, oh, a story that lies in wait or a story beneath the surface that is always waiting to be known or to be seen or to assert itself or to be alive um, and resurrected. Um, and to me, there are so many stories in, within this book that are that kind of like bubbling under the surface, desperate to emerge, um, especially when the girls discover like, oh, what is my history with this red thread? Why am I so attached to this item? Um, it, it gives an opportunity for that understory to to kind of, yeah, spring upward and and disrupt their lives in, in a way. Yeah. And it feels like some that dreams could be part of that understory. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how dreams work both in the story, uh, like in terms of what can happen, but also in terms of time and space within the within the novel. Yeah, I love this question um, because it's interesting. We often get told not to write about dreams. It's a little bit about like, oh, no one wants to hear about your dream. Like, please don't tell me. But I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but we have that in kind of a literary way where there's this rule oftentimes, not all the time, but sometimes um, there's this idea of like, oh, you shouldn't write about dreams. It's uninteresting or it's a way of like cheating. Um, it's a way of telling the reader the meaning of something without you know, explicitly telling them what the meaning is and all of these ideas of like what dreams are as a literary device. But uh, so th that was, there was a bit of initial resistance with that where it was like, oh no, am I violating this like sacred rule of not writing about dreams? Is the reader going to be incredibly bored and like see it as a kind of cop out? But I'm really fascinated by dreams and I have been my whole life and dreams are a huge part of my life and what I think about. So I'm like, oh, someone out there has to also be able to understand. Like, I can't be the only one um, who's really interested in dream lives, um, not only because I, I'm someone who has very vivid dreams um, and these dreams oftentimes contain imagery that feed directly into my writing, um, but also I was introduced to this idea when I was really young that after someone passes, they can appear in your dreams to kind of give their request, give their last request, essentially, um, or one last message for the living before their spirit then moves on entirely. So to me, dreams were also the world of the dead. They were these very porous realms um, that were bridges between realities. Um, and I, 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 I think that writing is really similar to that, where writing has this ability to bridge worlds to communicate with the living and the dead um and so to me writing about dreams always felt very right and um very natural yeah tour so one of the things we learn is that anita's mother um 
talks to the dead in her dreams. Mm-hmm. And she says something like, dreams are meant to be for others, not yourself. And mm-hmm. tell me about that in terms of agency and uh, the character's development. Yeah, I guess I was thinking a lot about Anita's mother, her kind of like generosity with the dream world or this idea that she's so capable of navigating these other realities that she can kind of do it at will um, and can allow other people into that process. Um, Because again, there is this uh, sense of expertise. It's her realm in the way. She's like kind of the gatekeeper. She's the deity. Um, she's the world builder. Um, I actually was thinking about that a lot in her dialogue with Anita. And she does actually tell Anita, oh, I I have done the work of world building for you because I want you to be free, because I want you to be able to make choices that I was not able to make. Um, and so her, her abilities in the dream world is that very literal form um, of world building. And I also was thinking a lot about uh, the idea that in dreams, we can put ourselves at risk or um, put ourselves in harm's way without ever actually risking ourselves. So it is this realm of infinite possibility and experimentation and exploration, sometimes horror and terror. Um, But I think there's something really powerful about having access to a world in which um, you can be boundless without ever risking your own safety. Um, And I think uh, Anita's mother has a very unique access to um, that form of play. I love this. And um, I, I hope that this gives listeners just a taste of, of what you can expect in reading this lovely book. Before we go, will you please recommend some books for us? Yes, I'm so excited to. Uh, the first, uh, because we are approaching Halloween, and actually, I always thought that I would write a vampire book before I wrote like a dog werewolfy kind of book because I've always loved vampires more than I have ever been drawn to any kind of canine human hybrid. So I feel a little bit like I betrayed my younger self. But I will recommend a vampire book, um, Carmilla by Sheridan Lefanu, um, which is, it is a classic and it predates Dracula and it has this um, kind of sapphic lesbian vampire peril energy <laughs> that I think is very fitting for this season. Um, and it is also very much about like the specter and horror of desire, <laughs> which is fun as well. And then my second book um, is called Abyss by Pilar Quintana. Um, it's so, so brilliant. And uh, it is about this kind of abyss that exists for these generations of women. It's a family story, which is something I'm very fascinated by. And it's also a mother-daughter story, um, which I love too. One of the epigraphs in this book is from Annie John, which I feel like is like the the essential mother-daughter story. Um, but it's also, to me, it is like psychological horror and also um, this portrait of daughterhood and motherhood and uh, feminine horror um, and the familial with this very, at first, it has this kind of unassuming style that builds in its uh, ability to, to evoke um, and haunt you. I love that. Thank you so much, Kaming Chang. Uh, the new book is called Organ Meats, but you might want to do the whole triptych. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. 
and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.